Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Susie Gelman, and I'm privileged to serve as the board chair of Israel Policy Forum. I hope that you all had an enjoyable and safe Thanksgiving weekend. If you're joining Israel Policy Forum for the first time today, I want to welcome you. And if you are a returning viewer, I want to welcome you back. For those who are new to us, Israel Policy Forum works to educate policymakers, Jewish community leaders, and leaders of the next generation to be informed and effective in their support of U.S. efforts to advance a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict consistent with Israel's security. In this critical moment, we're pleased to continue with our regular Tuesday video briefings. The impending arrival of a new administration in Washington presents important opportunities for our efforts to ensure a Jewish, democratic, and secure future for the state of Israel and a robust U.S.-Israel relationship. To stay informed about our work and our upcoming programs, I encourage you to visit our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org to become an email subscriber. On our website, I also invite you to check out our policy director, Michael Coplow's weekly column and information on how young professionals can get involved through our IPF Atid program. I also encourage you to tune into our podcast, Israel Policy Pod. To keep all of our work going, we rely on your generosity. So to all of our supporters on this program, I want to take this opportunity to say thank you. If you've not already done so, then on this Giving Tuesday, I said last week was Giving Tuesday, but today really is Giving Tuesday, please consider a gift to Israel Policy Forum to ensure that the vision of a Jewish, democratic, secure Israel maintains its relevance and power. You can make a contribution at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Now, on to today's program. Last Friday, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, Iran's chief nuclear scientist, was assassinated near Tehran. Iranian officials have blamed Israel for Fakhrizadeh's death, and Israel indeed appears to have been behind the operation. Fakhrizadeh's death has been compared to the U.S. strike that killed Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani earlier this year. The ramifications from this latest incident will have a significant bearing on Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons, the incoming Biden administration's approach to the Islamic Republic, and Israel's security vis-a-vis Iran and its proxies in the Middle East. To help us better understand the fallout from the Fakhrizadeh assassination, we're joined by Dr. Raz Zimt. Raz is a research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University, where he specializes in Iran's politics, foreign relations, society, and social media. Raz holds a master's degree and a PhD in Middle Eastern history from Tel Aviv University. His PhD dissertation focused on Iranian policy towards Nasserism and Arab radicalism between 1954 and 1967. He also works as a research fellow at the Alliance Center for Iranian Studies at Tel Aviv University and at the Doron Halpern Middle East Network Analysis Desk at the Moshe Dayan Center for Middle Eastern and African Studies. In addition, he's the editor of Spotlight on Iran, published by the Meir Amit Intelligence and Terrorism Information Center. With that, Raz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So first of all, can you please tell us who was Mohsen Fakhrizadeh? What role did he play in Iran's nuclear program? 
And how was he connected to other institutions such as the Revolutionary Guards or the military? Well, first of all, we have to understand that the Iranian nuclear program is a very uh, big and complicated program. Uh, its main, the main Iranian nuclear program, as we know, is the so-called civilian uh, program, which uh, is under the supervision of the IEA inspectors. Now, uh, Fakhrizadeh was not involved in, in that area. I mean, he, he was not involved in the enrichment of uranium or uh, the, centrifuge, the centrifuges spinning in Nataz or Fodo. He was actually, until 2003, the manager, the head of the so-called um, weaponization group, which was uh, a group, quite small group, of uh, probably dozens of Iranian scientists working specifically on uh, on the, the nuclear weapons uh, issue, meaning how to uh, uh, how to build a nuclear device. In 2003, uh, this program, this uh, group was dismantled. It, it was halted just after the U.S. invasion to Iraq, and he continued though to preserve the the, the material and the technology and the knowledge which is essential uh, for Iran if it decides to renew. Uh, the military dimensions of its nuclear program. So uh, after 2003, he was still a member of, uh, of the Iranian Defense Minister, Ministry. He also was working in different universities in Iran, including the Imam Hussein University, uh, which is connected to the RGC, to the Revolutionary Guards. But overall, uh, his main role was to preserve the knowledge concerning how to build a military nuclear device. Uh, some critics of the operation have suggested that Fakhrizadeh will simply be replaced by someone who is functionally equivalent to him in the Iranian nuclear program. While proponents of this strike have suggested that he held unique knowledge and skills, to what extent was Fakhrizadeh indispensable? Well, I believe no one is really indispensable, but uh, as I said, the, 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 uh, the weapons group was a small group. So there are no, uh, not many uh, Iranian scientists who work on this specific issue on how to develop a nuclear device. So it's not just like uh, Rasim Soleimani, uh, you mentioned before, uh, when he was killed, the Quds Force is a, quite a large organization within the RGC. He had a deputy. There are many commanders within the RGC who could replace him, even though we know that it's not, it's not that easy to replace someone like Soleimani. But if you go back to Fakhrizadeh in a group which is quite small uh, and quite uh, um, uh, secret, uh, and he's not just a scientist, but he was also a very good manager, and he, was, and he also had connections with the Iran, Iranian regime, especially the Supreme Leader Khamenei, uh, it will be more difficult to replace him. Of course, again, the, the question is not whether his assassination will impact uh, the nuclear program in Iran in general, but what will happen if Iran decides to renew the weapons program? Uh, in that case, it might be more difficult to replace, to replace someone like him. Iran has lifted limits on uranium enrichment, and it was recently revealed that its enriched uranium stockpile is 12 times the cap permitted under the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. 
What does this figure mean in re relation to Iran's ability to assemble a nuclear weapon? And how did this development play into Israeli perceptions of the threat posed by Fakhrizadeh? Well, first of all, we have to remember that Iran was 12 months away from what is called a breakout capability uh, just after the JCPOA was signed in 2015. Before that, before 2015, Iran was a month away from breakout capability, uh, two or three months away. Uh, and then the JCPOA was signed and Iran was uh, uh, rolled back its uh, nuclear program uh, up to, to the point where it was 12 months away. Uh, then in 2018, in May, President Trump decided to withdraw unilaterally from the JCPOA and reimpose sanctions. And then by the summer of 2019, Iran made the decision to adopt what is called uh, the maximum resistance uh, strategy uh, to counter the maximum pressure policy of President Trump. Since then, Iran has taken various measures to withdraw its commitment to the JCPOA and its compliance with the JCPOA. It did several things, for example, uh, having more stockpiles of enriched uranium, enriched uranium not just to 3.5% uh, as allowed by the JCPOA, but to 4.5%, uh, uh, using centrifuges to enrich uranium, not just in Natanz, but also in Fordo, the second uh, um, uh, site. So all those activities um, brought Iran to the point where today, according to most assessments, it is just three to four months away from breakout capability. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that in th three to four months, Iran will have nuclear weapons. It means that by in three or four months, it might have enough fissile material. And then if Iran takes a political decision to, uh, um, to, 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 to uh, uh, break out, uh, to nuclear weapon that might uh, um, uh, accelerate its uh, its effort. Now, Fakhrizadeh, as I said, was responsible for this uh, stage, for the last stage of uh, 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 having a nuclear military nuclear capabilities. So that means that if Iran took the decision to do that, Fakhrizadeh was quite essential in that stage uh, of uh, accelerating Iran's uh, nuclear activity. What do you make, laws of the timing of this attack as it relates to the American presidential transition period? As you know, we have a little over 50 days until Joe Biden is inaugurated as the 46th president. Do you believe that this attack was intended to encumber U.S. re-entry into the Iran deal under a Biden administration, as some have charged? Or do the Israelis not see this as connected to American partisan politics? Well, on the one side, I would say that Fakhrizadeh has always been one of the targets, uh, potential targets in Israel. Actually, there were some reports that uh, Israel tried in the past to assassinate him uh, and failed to do that. So uh, as someone who played a very significant role in Iran's uh, military nuclear program, he was certainly always uh, been a, a kind of a, a potential target for Israel. Having said that, uh, certainly the timing is, uh, is significant. Uh, I could say that uh, what you said, an Israeli attempt to make it more difficult for President Biden to uh, reproach with Iran and try to uh, go back to the JCPOA could have been one, uh, one reason to do that. Another po uh, possible reason is that Iran perhaps assessed that it might be much more difficult for Israel 
to continue carrying out those covert activities in Iran after Biden uh, enters the White House. Uh, just to remind everyone, a few months ago, uh, another uh, operation was attribu attributed to the Israeli Mossad, uh, the sabotage in Natanz, in this uh, uh, site used for uh, research and development of uh, advanced centrifuges in Iran. Uh, so we can certainly see uh, more and more Israeli efforts uh, to delay Iran's nuclear program as it accelerates its uh, program. But uh, uh, but naturally, uh, as we have 50 days left until uh, Trump leaves the White House, it might give uh, Israel another reason to do that now and not wait because it doesn't know what will happen and, uh, after January. And as a follow-up to that, Last question. Trump obviously is still president and whether or not there were political considerations at play here, his administration has undeniably been more amenable to taking a more aggressive approach to Iran. What do you think Israel's considerations will be in weighing the utility of these kinds of operations once Joe Biden is in office? That's a very good question. It I think it depends on the way Israel can uh, convince Biden, uh, perhaps not uh, Israel will not be able to convince Biden not to re-engage re in political process with Iran and renegotiations with Iran. But Israel still hopes, I think, that it might uh, try to convince Biden not to give up the so-called uh, leverage of the sanctions being reimposed by Trump uh, in return for uh, Iran's uh, uh, going back to its compliance with the JCPOA. If that doesn't work, and if uh, uh, Biden and Iran, if the U.S. new administration and Iran uh, agree on a compliance uh, in return for compliance, meaning the removal of the sanctions or most of the sanctions in return for Iran's uh, compliance to the JCPOA, that might uh, be a very big concern for Israel. We've already heard Prime Minister Netanyahu last week say, saying that the U.S. Uh, should not go back to the JCPOA. Israel, as you all know, uh, was uh, very critici uh, criticizing uh, the, the JCPOA. It was saying that it was a flow deal and that the, the Biden administration should not uh, waste or so-called waste the, the sanctions and it should uh, make it make it uh, uh, make Iran uh, agree to uh, to um, uh, for, for few amendments within the JCPOA in exchange for sanctions. If that doesn't work, I'm, I, I'm concerned that that might lead to a kind of uh, uh, tension between the new administration and, and the Israeli government. Um, switching a little bit uh, to the subject of normalization between the UAE, Bahrain, uh, possible other Arab states, Jared Kushner is headed to Saudi Arabia and Qatar this week likely in a last-ditch effort to rake in more diplomatic openings before the Trump administration leaves office next month. How do you think this latest incident with Fakhri Zadeh or an escalation between Israel and Iran would impact Saudi Arabia's attitude towards normalization with Israel? I'm not sure it's going to, to, to have any, any kind of impact. I do think that uh, both Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE, and probably also Bahrain are quite concerned with uh, with the possibility of escalation in the Gulf uh, because of this uh, incident. Uh, so I, I don't think it will impact the normalization. But uh, what might impact this uh, this normalization is what's going to happen between uh, between Iran and the United States after January. Uh, 
I do think that one of the possible reactions or revenge uh, carried out by Iran in retaliation to this attack might be to try and carry out attacks against Israeli targets in UAE or in Bahrain, and that certainly might uh, have an impact. Uh, everyone knows that, that the, this kind of normalization between Israel and the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain has a lot to do with uh, the so-called Iranian threat, the Iranian challenge. Uh, but overall, I think that uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE and Bahrain realizes that Iran is here to stay and uh, I'm not sure they want any kind of escalation. We all remember uh, Saudi reaction and UAE reaction after uh, last summer attack, uh, Iranian attack in Saudi Arabia, and then before that, the Iranian uh, attack on uh, UAE uh, tankers in the Gulf. Uh, they did nothing. Uh, they, they are quite concerned with Iran. They might find Israel as a, as a new ally against Iran, but I find it very un unlikely that they will do something uh, against Iran on their own. Uh, I want to remind our audience, if you have, if you would like to ask Laz a question, please type it in the Q&A box. We have several that I'm about to get to, but please feel free if you want to ask a question and we'll get to as many as we can. Um, Laz, just days before Fakhri Zadeh's assassination, Al-Qaeda leader Abu Mohammed al-Masri was shot, allegedly by Israeli agents in Iran. What do we know about the extent of the Israeli intelligence presence in the Islamic Republic? Well, we don't know, I don't know a lot about uh, Israeli intelligence activities in, in Iran. What I do know that uh, Iran is very concerned and there is a growing concern in Iran. I personally read at least three or four articles on the last uh, three days in Iranian press uh, raising uh, doubts and criticism. How come Israel is, uh, uh, has successfully infiltrated uh, Iran's and Iran's uh, security forces. Uh, that's the main question. I, I think that uh, both the sabotage in Atans, the killing of Al-Qaeda activists in, in Iran, uh, the killing of Fakhrizadeh, then before that, uh, the operation by the Mossad to steal the, the nuclear archives are all evidence for Iran that Israel has succeed, successfully uh, infiltrated Iran. The, and the question is how, uh, how could they deal with that? Uh, until now, uh, they don't seem quite successful to do that. And I have to say that it, it adds, uh, there is a growing criticism within Iran uh, over that, not just because of Israeli alleged uh, activities in Iran, but because it joins other failures of the Iranian regime and the Iranian security forces uh, to address uh, the problems and, uh, and uh, um, uh, all the problems of the Iranian citizens we know that there is a growing crisis of legitimacy by of, of the Iranian regime because it failed to address the grievances of the Iranian people. So uh, what we what what we're seeing today is that uh, this these kind of uh, of uh, operations even increase the sense of uh, insecurity and uh, and uh, the voices saying that Iran is incapable of even uh, providing the security to its uh, uh, to its most sensitive assets uh, within the country. Laz, I'm going to turn to the audience questions in a second, but uh, just a follow up on on the issue of potential retaliation by Iran. You mentioned it a few minutes ago, but of course, Iran also has proxies in the region: Hezbollah on the northern border, Hamas on the southern border, south, yeah. 
I guess, southwestern border uh, in Gaza. What do you think the likelihood would be of Iran basically unleashing either or both of these proxies to retaliate against Israel, as opposed to directly confronting Israel in some way? Well, first of all, I, I would like to say that uh, there are many discussions in the last two or three days concerning what the Iran, Iranian reaction will be. And I think it's important to distinguish between two things, between a revenge and a, and a reaction. A revenge uh, has nothing to do uh, with the Biden administration. It's not one of the considerations of Iran. Iran wants to revenge against Israel, uh, unlike the, the sabotage in Natanz a few months ago, where most Iranian officials did not put the blame on Israel specifically. This time, most of the Iranians uh, or Iranian officials put the blame on Israel. So there is uh, no doubt they want to take revenge. Now, personally, I believe that they would uh, prefer to take uh, a revenge, which has something to do uh, with the uh, characteristics of the Israeli operation. So if Israel uh, killed a nuclear scientist, I would say that their pre uh, preferred action would be, for example, to hit an, an Israeli target uh, abroad, uh, perhaps Israeli embassy. Uh, we know that after Israel assassinated the nuclear uh, scientists before, uh, Iran tried to... Uh, uh, to carry out terrorist attacks against uh, Israeli targets, for example, in Thailand. So I think this would be the preferred way of, of retaliating. Uh, I, I, I don't think that they would like to use the proxies against Israel because this is a kind of thing they would like to uh, take revenge on their own and not uh, count on, the, on, on their proxies. Uh, they can use the proxies anyway. I mean, two weeks ago we had those... Uh, uh, this incident in, in northern Israel, in the Golan, where Syrians were putting mines uh, supervised and assisted by the IRGC Quds Force. So this ha has more to do with the ongoing confrontation between Israel and, and Iran in Syria. So this is kind of a re revenge. I have to say, to add, that we also have to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to ask ourselves the question, what would or what might be Iranian uh, reaction not against Israel, but concerning its nuclear program, because there is a growing uh, political discourse today in Iran uh, between the so-called pragmatists who say that Iran should not uh, 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 should not fall to the, this trap uh, put by the Zionists and accelerate its uh, nuclear program just 50 days before the new administration in, in Washington, while there are others in Iran, mostly the hardliners, the conservatives, who say that uh, enough is enough, and we have uh, to to do something such as enrich uranium to 20% on, or uh, kick the IEA inspectors out of Iran. Uh, just today, uh, as you probably heard in the news, the Iranian Majlis, the Iranian parliament, uh, passed a, a law uh, calling upon the government to do something. It's more symbolic because it, it's not authorized to do that, but that's a sign that there are some voices in Iraq to take uh, further steps to accelerate its uh, nuclear program. So, Laz, I'm going to turn to our audience. We have a lot of questions. Um, Jonathan Broder, a reporter from Newsweek, asks, how do you explain the condemnation of the Fakhridazeh assassination by both the UAE and Bahrain, given that one of the main drivers of their normalization of relations with Israel was their shared concern over the uh, Iranian threat to the region? My answer is that both the UAE and Bahrain uh, understands uh, that with all due respect to Israel, 
uh, Iran is their neighbor. And the last thing they want is a escal military escalation in the region. As I said before, when, uh, when Iran attacked uh, Saudi Arabia last summer, uh, Saudi Arabia was probably hopeful that Trump would do nothing, uh, would, uh, would, would uh, retaliate. The only thing uh, Trump did was uh, to tweet. And then uh, Saudi Arabia understood that it has to, to stand uh, alone uh, uh, against Iran. Bahrain is even uh, uh, is even in a more difficult situation because, as you probably know, Iran has supported in the past uh, Shiite Islamic opposition in Bahrain. In the UAE, there are uh, hundreds of thousands of Iranian businessmen uh, doing business in in the UAE, especially in especially in Dubai. So they they want to have good relations with Israel. They want uh, Israel to support them. They probably want U.S. military advanced weapons but they certainly don't want military escalation in the region. So when something like this happens, the first thing they do is uh, condemn it and hope, uh, and hope for that uh, um, it won't evolve into uh, escalation in the region. Um, Errol Barg, how confident should we be that if Iran were to make the political decision to break out toward a weapon, that the U.S. and Israel would be aware of the decision when it is made, or very soon. Well, we will. Pro well, I'm not sure we will uh, will be aware of the decision itself, but the meaning of such a decision is that Iran will uh, have to, for example, to expel IEA inspectors because, as I said, the main uh, component of Iran's nuclear program today. Uh, are the sites, especially in Natanz and Fordow, which are supervised by the IEA inspectors. So, for example, Iran is not uh, permitted, uh, according to the NPT, and specifically not according to the JCPOA, to enrich uranium to more than 20%, which is considered to be uh, an enrichment to military uh, level. So if Iran make the makes the decision uh, to break out, we will probably, not probably, we will see some uh, actions against the IEA inspectors. Uh, the question is whether it will be enough time, especially for Israel, to, uh, to react. Now, if Iran uh, made the decision, I mean, the Supreme Leader of Iran, if he made the decision to renew, for example, then the weaponization group or the, the, this component of the nuclear uh, weapons, uh, and do nothing concerning the civilian uh, part of the, of the of the uh, of the program. We might uh, not be aware of that. Uh, um, that's why, by the by, uh, that, that's why the JCPOA dealt only with the so-called civilian uh, part, with the with the question of uh, stockpiles of enriched uranium, because this part could be supervised and uh, monitored. Okay, keep going here. Um, John Allen asks, previously it was said that opposition to the JCPOA centered on Bibi. The Mossad and the IDF were said to have supported it. Is that true? If so, where are the Mossad and the IDF now in a possible renegotiation with Iran? Hmm. Delicate question. Uh, well, I, I will be, uh, I'll try to, uh, to say this. Uh, I don't think anyone in Israel including all the Mossad and, uh, and the IDF, really thought that it was the, the best 
uh, agreement reached in the history of humankind. I mean, everyone understood that it had some flaws. Uh, the question was uh, whether the JCPOA provided Israel with the uh, best uh, solution in comparison to other options. Uh, and some in Israel, by the way, including myself, believe that when you compare between different approaches and different options to this problem of the, of the nuclear program of Iran, you can either use military force, but everyone understands that military force used against Iran will probably delay the nuclearization of Iran by one to two years, because unlike the nuclear program of Iraq and the nuclear program in Syria, uh, Iran has uh, the, the knowledge is inside Iran. Iran has the capability. It has the technology. It, it can rehabilitate, rehabilitate uh, its sites if, if uh, Israel or the United States attacks them. So that's one option. The second option is using uh, all kinds of covert activities, which might delay some of the program, but it, uh, but usually usually only limited uh, delay. And the third option was the JCPOA. And the JCPOA actually delayed uh, the nuclear uh, program of Iran by 8 to 15 years until the, the so-called sunset uh, closes. So many in Israel believe that while there were some problems in the, within the JCPOA, it was the best option within all the other options. Now, uh, today I would say even some of those who uh, supported the JCPOA as the... Um, worst case uh, scenario, I would say, uh, even some of them would, would tell you today that yes, we were in favor perhaps of the JCPOA. Uh, we were, some of them were against uh, Trump's decision to withdraw from the JCPOA, but we should realize the reality today is that the United States has uh, allegedly a, a leverage, not, not everyone would uh, agree that it has a leverage, but it has the leverage, the sanctions, and that the U.S. should use the sanctions in order to convince Iran to agree uh, to uh, amend the JCPOA, perhaps to expand the, the JCPOA. Of course, the question is whether Iran is willing to do that. I have to say that as I follow uh, the Iranian uh, officials' statements, especially Khamenei and Rouhani, my sense is that it will be very, very difficult and very unlikely to convince the Iranians uh, to agree to any kind of uh, change within the JCPOA uh, with it, without going back at the first stage to the original JCPOA. Well, we shall see what evolves in, as uh, Joe Biden uh, gets into office. Exactly. Um, Harry Dank, who is a former writer, editor, and producer for CBS News, asks... Is there any indication that the United States knew about the assassination ahead of time? I, I'm not aware of that, but I have to say that I will personally be surprised if something like this, with all the potential implications of such an assassination, uh, which might impact not just Israel, but also U.S. forces in the region, uh, would, have carried, would have been carried out by Israel without letting the Americans know before. So uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the U.S. was part of the operation, if it just gave a green light to Israel, for Israel to do that. But uh, without a coordination between the two states, uh, I think it might have been uh, difficult for Israel to carry it out. 
Ellen Luxemburg asks, assuming Israel is responsible for the assassination, and I want to be clear, in my opening remarks, I said it appears that Israel was behind it. I didn't say yeah. Israel did it. So I just want to be very clear what I did and didn't say. Um, and I'm curious your assessment of what I said. But assuming Israel is responsible for the assassination, what role um, do Israeli domestic political considerations play in undertaking this operation, especially if Netanyahu is anticipating another election next year, I mean, there's, as you know, it's being reported that the blue-white party is going to essentially put into motion um, dissolution of the government and there would be elections in March if that happens. An even more sensitive question. Um, my, my my privilege is that I can say everyone everything because I'm an academic and I don't represent anyone. Uh, look, uh, first of all, you have to remember, uh, carrying out such an attack, such an assassination takes time. Planning takes time, usually weeks or months or even a year. So the question, of course, is whether the timing uh, had anything to do with, with political motives or consideration. I would like to believe, uh, and I hope, that domestic political consideration were not part of the decision to do that. Uh, as I said, there might have been political consideration, which has to do with the fact that Trump leaves the White House and Biden is entering the White House and Israel might have assessed that uh, it will be more difficult for Biden to uh, return to JCPOA after such an assassination. I'm not sure, by the way, it, it will work. But uh, domestic political Israeli consideration, I hope they were not part of the decision. But unfortunately, when it comes to Israeli politics these days, I cannot guarantee that, that, that this is the case. Laz, can you just expand a little bit on what you just said about you're not sure it will work, that, that this assassination will make it harder to, to re-enter the JCPOA or resume negotiations even with Iran once yeah. there's a Biden administration? Well, I think that um, the assessment or the working uh, uh, assessment was that if something like this happens and this chief uh, nuclear scientist is, is assassinated, it might uh, force Iran to do something uh, in a way which will make it more difficult for the United States to go back for the JCPOA. For example, if Iran would uh, decide to enrich uranium to 20%, if Iran decides to leave the NPT, if Iran decides to uh, stop its uh, cooperation with the IEA, that might... Uh, um, have some impact on the ability of both sides to be engaged in negotiations. It might also convince Khamenei that there is no point of going back to negotiation with the United States if such uh, covert actions continue. Uh, the problem with this uh, kind of thinking is that I'm not sure Iran will uh, cooperate with this thing. And uh, just as uh, President Rouhani said uh, a few days ago, we will not fall into this trap. So. Uh, uh, it might even have um, opposite uh, results because uh, as, as, as I look at the reactions from the EU, for example, condemning this uh, alleged Israeli attack, uh, when I hear voices within the United States, I, I don't know if they represent the new administration, uh, criticizing this issue and uh, worrying that it might lead to escalation, uh, it might even increase the sense of urgency within the, the new administration to de-escalate uh, situation with Iran and even be more uh, 
try to all hurry it up uh, and go back to the JCPOA as quickly as possible. Uh, so I'm not sure that uh, this this would work. Just as uh, I remind everyone, the the many thought, and I I think they were uh, correct that some of the actions taken by the Trump administration, even uh, before the uh, the U.S. election, for example. Uh, trying to activate the snapback mechanism or trying to extend the uh, the, uh, the weapons embargo against Iran uh, was uh, politically motivated, uh, aimed to make it more difficult for Biden uh, to go back to the JCPOA. We have a question from Robert Gutman, who says, Western secular Zionists like me are baffled by the paradox of reported strong Iranian civilian interest in freedom and secular life in the iron grip of the theocracy. Is that grip unbreachable? And if so, why? Well, uh, that's uh, for a lecture of uh, two hours. Uh, <laughs> look, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm not sure that we can really speak about um, secularization in Iran. I mean, I, I have a lecture called... Uh, uh, the growing gap between the Iranian regime and the Iranian citizen, when I, where I, I, I discuss uh, the domestic and the social trends within Iranian society, some of them have a lot to do with secu so-called secularization. But when you mean uh, secular Iranians, uh, it's not just Iranians who stop observing uh, the, re the uh, religion. Uh, yes, there is also something like this. We have uh, surveys being carried uh, out in Iran showing, for example, that uh, most people do not fast in Ramadan. Most people do not go to the mosques on Friday. Uh, so there is this kind of secularization. But in addition, we can see uh, growing uh, contempt towards the clerics in Iran. Uh, people no longer uh, considered clerics as the representative of the people, but as representative of the regime. So that, of course, uh, uh, causes the erosion of the position of the clerical establishment in Iran. Uh, I would have to say, and that's a very that's a very important question, whether all those trends uh, will uh, someday, perhaps uh, soon, uh, will be translated or evolved into political change in Iran. I have to say that I'm among uh, the many Iranian watchers, not just in Israel, who uh, are not very optimistic about that. Because uh, while there is growing gap between the Iranian regime and the Iranian population, and you can certainly see uh, more and more Iranians calling for more freedom and more economic uh, improvement, uh, I believe that uh, to be very short, uh, the Iranian regime is still strong enough it is still ready and capable of using repressive capabilities, as we saw uh, last November in the in the gasoline uh, riots in Iran. And I think that uh, there is no real opposition in Iran. There is there are some protests in Iran. Uh, we saw uh, several uh, ways of protest in Iran over the last three years, but the number of protesters was relatively low. Uh, they were scattered. Uh, the Iranian middle class uh, in general still hasn't joined the protest in Iran. And, you know, when you ask many Iranians, why don't you go to the streets and demonstrate? Many of them are saying because uh, we, we are concerned with the possibility 
of chaos. We are afraid of the alternative. We know that the, uh, the, the chances of a successful revolution is very, very low. And we might find ourselves in a situation like Syria or in a situation where the revolutionary guards take control. And that would be even worse, perhaps, from the current situation in Iran. A related question comes from uh, one of our board members, Bob Sugarman, who asks, how do the events of the past week impact on the upcoming elections in Iran, which I believe are going to be in June? Is that in right? June, yeah. Uh, well, it's it, it, it depends. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it depends. I think the, the, the presidential election in June are, are probably going to be affected mainly by what's going to happen between Iran and the United States. And up to January. If there is a return to the JCPOA, if there is kind of understanding between Iran and the United States, if there is renewed optimism in Iran within the Iranian population, uh, because right now there is a growing uh, um, pessimism within the population in Iran, especially due to the COVID-19 and the economic crisis in Iran, if there is some chances of improvement, that might uh, give the only chance for the more pragmatists in Iran. Now, I have to remind everyone, President Rouhani will not be able to run again because according to the Iranian constitution, he has only two terms uh, as president. Uh, so it's, it's too early to say who will replace him because we still don't know uh, who are the candidates. Uh, I, I have to say that right now it seems that the so-called reformist or so-called uh, pragmatists in Iran will have a very uh, difficult time to succeed in those elections uh, because Rouhani did not deliver the promises he gave to the population, because the, uh, the, the growing confrontation between Iran and the United States actually uh, moved, uh, turned Iran poly Iranian politics into a more radical hardliner politics. Uh, so I think it will... Uh, take more than that to impact the elections in uh, in uh, in June. I, I would add a, another thing. We have to, to, to see whether Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, will allow President Rouhani to be engaged in negotiations with the United States because Khamenei knows that it might be a kind of a gift to Rouhani uh, ahead of the elections, and I'm not sure he wants to give him that gift. That's interesting. Um, we have a couple of related questions, so I'm going to take. I'm going to give you both of them because they're they're closely tied. Um, M. Pinkasovi asks, "How do you assess Iran's nuclear threat to Israel and the region as compared with Tehran's ballistic missile missile threat to the region?" And Howard Sherwood similarly asks, "Tom Friedman yesterday wrote an opinion piece identifying the precision rockets used by Iran and suggested that this is as much a threat as nuclear. How vulnerable is Israel from from Says, assuming Iran provides these weapons to Hezbollah and Hamas. Okay, How so, is Israel assuming Iran provides these weapons? Well, uh, um, Israel sees three main threats coming from Iran. One is the Iran's malign uh, regional activity, its support for Hezbollah, its uh, involvement in Syria, its attempts to entrench itself militarily. In Syria, so that's its support for Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. That's one aspect of the Iranian so-called threat. The second thing is the missile program, and here we have to speak both on the ballistic long-range missiles inside Iran, uh, being developed uh, continuously, and Iran's delivery of precise uh, rockets and missiles 
or components of uh, missiles and rockets to Hezbollah. Uh, this threat is considered by Israel, especially the precise uh, project, the precise weapons, as strategic threat to the state of Israel, because it means that Hezbollah, if it has even a few hundreds uh, precise missiles or rockets, that might uh, make a very uh, dramatic change in the ability of Hezbollah to deal with Israel in a future confrontation. Uh, nevertheless, I would have to say this is a strategic potential threat. Israel has, uh, as you know, uh, been involved in continuous efforts over the last few years to delay this process of uh, delivering precise weapons to Hezbollah. I wouldn't say it was 100% successful because no, no, nothing is 100% uh, successful, but I would say that uh, it did manage to delay this process quite a while. The third threat is the nuclear issue and the nuclear threat. Now, today there is no uh, um, specific nuclear uh, existential threat to the state of Israel, because as I said before, the assessment, the uh, intelligence assessment is that the uh, nuclear weapons program was halted in 2003. We don't know exactly where they reached. We know that they're still three and or two, four months away uh, concerning the stockpiles of enriched uranium from breakout capability. Even if they decide, decide to do that, it will probably take more than a year until they reach the point of uh, first uh, nuclear military device. So this is not uh, an immediate threat to the state of Israel, uh, but in the long run, I would say that there is no doubt that the nuclear issue is the number one priority to the state of Israel, because this is the only one, uh, only threat which has the potential of becoming an existential threat to the state of Israel. Uh, the missiles are strategic threats, but again, uh, it's uh, uh, right now we still uh, try to uh, delay this process of uh, delivering uh, precise weapons from Iran to Hezbollah. How is that happening? Delaying the process? Just by strikes, just by military okay. strikes. That's the only okay. way to do that right now. Um, uh, by uh, Whenever Israel has the intelligence and the, 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 the operational opportunity to attack uh, Iran's supplies to Hezbollah, it does that. Um, unfortunately, I, I'm not aware of any any other option to do that um, besides that. But you're saying that effort is ongoing regardless. It's ongoing, yeah. Okay. Um, Avi Poster asks, if lifting sanctions would result in slowing down enrichment, as it did before, why isn't returning to the table, why isn't that a worthy consideration? Returning uh, I, I, as I said before, I was the I was the among those who supported the JCPOA in a way. So I do think that by going back to the JCPOA, by going back to agreements uh, with Iran, uh, it will uh, bring Iran back to compliance. Which means that some of most of the things which Iran carried out over the last year concerning the concerning the number of centrifuges. Uh, the number of the the, the 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 level of enrichment can be rolled back. By the way, the research and development Iran has uh, carried out over the last year is something else because this is not uh, this is irre irreversible. But uh, Iran can roll back its uh, its capabilities. The only problem, and this is a very big problem, is that even according to the JCPOA, the limitations on Iran's enrichment enrichment program are not uh, for uh, uh, forever. I mean, uh, uh, according to the JCPOA, between the 8th to the 15th year of the agreement, Iran will 
uh, some of the um, limitations are going to be uh, removed. And that means that uh, when the JCPOA expires, Iran will go back to be uh, a country with a, a threshold, cap threshold capability only weeks or months away from breakout capability. This was the main uh, problem, the main concern of Israel, saying that, yes, it, it might take 10 to 15 years, but 10 to 15 years when it comes to nuclear program is not that long. And uh, that was the main Israeli concern. Again, the problem is that I'm, I'm not aware of any other option which uh, gives us a better solution. Jonah Nagy, who's one of our IPF ATID leaders, asks, even if Biden re-enters the nuclear deal and makes it better, it will only be a temporary accord. What will it take to make a more long-term comprehensive deal in regards to Iran's nuclear ambitions? Okay, so first we have to uh, separate between the nuclear issue and the two other issues I mentioned, the missiles, the long-range missiles, and Iran malign activity in, in the region. Concerning the nuclear issue, theoretically, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's possible to extend the, any kind of uh, non-proliferation agreement uh, again and again. So uh, uh, it, it's, 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 it's quite possible that when we reach uh, the, the 10th or the 12th or the 15th year of the JCPOA, both sides, meaning the P5 plus one and Iran, would agree to extend this agreement. Of course, we have to remember that Iran will also have demands uh, at this point, not just the, the West. Iran might, for example, demand that the US uh, remove the, the, in, the, the, uh, the sanctions, the, the US sanctions, allowing, for example, Iran to, to make business with the, with the EU uh, with dollar, with US dollars, for, for example. So this is the, concerning the nuclear issue. There is a very big debate going on in, in Israel as well, whether the two other issues, the missiles and the regional policy of Iran should be included in the deal. The missiles is, is, a, is something which could be included because the missiles uh, are more related to the nuclear issue. Again, I'm not sure Iran will agree for that because Iran has made it very clear that uh, the, the long-range missiles is the number one and the only uh, um, way of, of Iran to, uh, um, um, to use as a deterrence because, as you probably know, there is no real effective Iranian air force. So this, the, those missiles are the number one deterrence uh, capability. So I'm not sure they're going to, to, uh, to agree to do that. The second issue is the regional activities. And now I personally believe it will be a mistake to include the regional issues within the JCPOA because I think it, personally it will make things much more complicated to reach an agreement. And second, because I'm not sure that regional issues should be addressed within an agreement. There are other ways to address those issues. For example, as I said, when, Iran, when Israel wants to... Uh, deal with uh, Iran's military entrenchment in Syria, it does that anyway. If the US wants to deal with Iran's uh, activity or involvement in Iraq, there are ways to do that. For example, by supporting the, the central government in Iraq or try to uh, uh, convince other countries, including the Gulf country or Europe, uh, to invest more in Iraq in order to, uh, um, to come up with an alternative to Iran's influence inside Iraq. Uh, I'm not sure that this is a thing for an agreement because 
what could you do? I mean, if, if you say, for example, in an agreement that Iran will not, be, will not be able to support Hamas and PIJ, how do you guarantee that? Uh, Iran, as you know, is not sending its, uh, its forces uh, to other countries uh, with the exception of Syria. Uh, most Iranian involvement in Iraq, for example, is based on, on proxies. So it's very difficult to deal with, with Iran's uh, influence and activity in the region. And I'm not sure it's a good idea to, uh, to do that within the agreement. There are other ways to do that. We have a question, Laz, from Richard Corner about China and Russia uh, being uh, part of the P5, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is it likely that the new Biden administration may find it difficult to convince China and Russia to join in the resumption, well, join the resumption of the JCPOA? I think, I think what Richard means is join in the return to negotiations, because, of course, it's the United States that left the JCPOA. Uh, no, I, think, I, I don't think there will be any problem. I think both China, Russia and the EU has made it very clear that they support the going back of the US to the JCPOA. The problem will be uh, not Russia and not China and not the EU. The problem will be uh, whether the United States uh, will be ready to uh, go back to the JCPOA uh, in conditions which are going to meet the demands of the Iranians. Uh, Iran, by the way, said uh, there is no need for negotiations. You, uh, you withdrew from, from the JCPOA unilaterally you violated the JCPOA in a, in a reaction. We uh, reduce our commitment to the JCPOA. If you want to go back to the JCPOA, just do that. Remove the sanctions and we automatically, even without any kind of negotiation, are going to uh, return to compliance. So the problem, I think, is not China and Russia. I think there is another, there is a different problem with China, especially with China. What will happen if there is no going back to the JCPOA and whether China will continue uh, to uh, help Iran uh, circumvent the sanctions? Because uh, we know that even today, uh, Iran successfully uh, smuggles oil uh, from Iran with the support given by China. Uh, so that helps uh, Iran with uh, dealing with the sanctions. Uh, there were all those reports about the 15 years uh, deal between Iran and China. So there are more and more voices in Iran saying that we should not uh, we should not trust the Americans, we should not trust the Europeans. We should just go and re rely on, on China. This is a very significant voices today in, inside Iran. That's kind of ominous. Mishulam um, Unger asks. Uh, are there areas where Biden could deploy special forces to areas in Syria to help put more pressure on Iran? Uh, look, first of all, I have to remember that most Iranian forces uh, withdrew from, from Syria. I mean, Iran sent approximately uh, 1,500 to 2,000 troops back in 2015 to Syria. Most of them left Syria uh, because there is no need for such a big uh, Iranian uh, force there. Uh, so Iran tries to uh, rely more and more on proxies, mostly on Syrian proxies, on the uh, troops being recruited from among the Shiite Afghans and Pakistanis and Iraqis in Syria. Uh, I believe that the U.S. presence, even though it's not big, is important in the efforts to 
to try and limit Iranian influence, whether direct influence or through its proxies. Uh, it's important in Syria. It's important in Iraq. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure that uh, when I see this uh, reduction of, for of U.S. forces in the region, um, I I'm not sure that this policy will change. But I think that uh, it is important for the U.S. to preserve at least some of the forces uh, uh, in Iraq, by, uh, for example, uh, it, it kind of works in, in a way. I mean, we, we know that Iran is much more restrained because of the threats made by U.S. forces in Iraq to use force against both Iran and uh, uh, pro-Iranian uh, Iraqi militias. Laz, do you think Iran is more concerned about Israel or Saudi Arabia? Uh, I'm not sure they should be concerned with Saudi Arabia. Uh, I mean, uh, especially after they saw the reaction or the lack of reaction by the Saudis to the attack from Iran against the Aramco in, uh, installations uh, last summer. Uh, there is no doubt that, uh, that Iran understands that uh, Israel is a bigger threat uh, and Israel is perhaps the only one who is not just willing to use force, but is is uh, is using force not just against Iranian uh, forces in Syria, but also inside Iran, uh, which is a thing Saudi Arabia will, would never do. And I, I don't blame them. Uh, I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia, with all due respect, is a state which has uh, dealt with uh, Iranian uh, subversive activities in the past. It has a Shiite small minority in the east, uh, so this is this creates a quite sensitive situation for Saudi Arabia. Uh, it's a it is a neighbor, neighbor of Iran, uh, so the things are different between Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, than they are between Israel and Iran. So I think we have time for one or two more questions, Laz. Um, uh, we have a question. Why is everyone so certain that Iran actually stopped its nuclear military program? Maybe it just went underground. And by that, I think maybe the main literally went underground. I think the question is, how do we know they actually stopped when they, I mean, obviously the IAEA inspectors were there, but is, is it possible? No, the IAEA inspectors uh, uh, supervised the, the, the civilian part of the program. Uh, well, I wouldn't want to go inside the intelligence, of course, uh, but, uh, but there is a quite um, uh, good intelligence, not just uh, Israeli sources, but also US uh, sources uh, attest to this fact that, the, again, the weapons group was dismantled back in 2003. Uh, we also know that the archive uh, stolen by the Mossad a few years ago actually showed that there was no uh, concrete military uh, nuclear activity after 2003 or 2004. But again, the, the problem is that even if it was not renewed, the knowledge is still there and it will probably not take uh, too long to revive it because the, uh, it also comes to, to, the, to the knowledge of, of several scientists working on that and preserving this, uh, this technology. Unfortunately, Laz, that's all the time we have today, but thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, it was really very interesting, and, and we could have gone on for another hour or two easily. 
once again, I want to thank our supporters who are with us on today's call. Your generosity makes programs like this one possible. Again, if you have not yet done so, please consider making a contribution today, Giving Tuesday, at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. Thank you all once more for joining us today. Again, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, to sign up for to receive the weekly column, Coplo column in your inbox, and to visit our website to access recordings of our previous briefings. And again, this, this uh, webinar will be posted on uh, our on our website later on today as a podcast. Uh, please stay tuned for an announcement about our next video briefing, which will take place on Tuesday, December 8th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. Remember, if it's Tuesday, it's an IPF webinar. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.